0: If you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, after a one-week break, uh, we're back in the book of Acts. We'll read all of chapter 3, all 26 verses, but it's uh, only four points this morning once we get to the sermon, not 10, so we can slow down just a little bit there. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 26, hear now the reading of God's And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you to receive your holy word and we need your help to do that. We need your spirit to open our eyes, to open our hearts, that we might hear, that we might receive and respond to all that you have to say to us. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Bible also tells us that God knows what we need before we ask, which means, at least in a way, that you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometime, you find you just might get what you need now, which of those quotes is not like the others, but aren't all of them inviting the same basic question. What do you really need? What do we really need? And isn't that what we struggle with so often? Will God give us what we need? Will he give us what we need? See, this story starts with a man who thinks he needs gold or some kind of help. He gets something better in the end. The story turns to a group who wants, it seems, an explanation. They get a more amazing explanation they might've hoped for. Now, in some ways it is a worse explanation, a more convicting explanation, but it also ends up being much better, much better through it all they realize That the very one they need is the one that they've rejected. But at the same time, the one they've rejected is the very one who is still offering them salvation. Times of refreshing, restoration, terms of peace instead of guilt and condemnation for sin. In the end, a miraculous healing points to a miraculous savior risen and ascended to heaven, promised by the prophets who miraculously saves those who initially reject him. Wouldn't you like to meet him, that savior? But in order to get to him, first we need to pass by a man, a man with no name, who doesn't know what his deepest need is. That's the first of our four points. You might also call him instead, a man who received grace, not gold. A man who received grace, not gold. You see this in the first 10 verses. It's 3 p.m. time for prayer. So John and Peter head to the temple along the way. They meet this man with no name in verses two and three. And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. That is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Why do they mention the name of the gate, The, the beautiful gate? It's probably because Dr. Luke is a detail oriented, very careful historian. Why don't they tell us the man's name? Maybe that's less important than what happens to him. We know he's lame, lame from birth. It's not a, it's a deep seated medical problem, not a minor one, not a recent one. And he's doing well, what disabled people probably did in that day. He's begging, he's asking for alms or charitable giving. You see, it's. Is it sort of like the people who stand on the street corner and ask for spare change? Well, sort of. This man had no other option except the generosity of family and friends, if he had any. There was no other social services back in the day. He's pretty desperate. It says in verses 4 and 5, Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he, the lame man, fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them, Luke is building up the tension, isn't he? This man expects to receive something. Peter's showing him some kindness, some attention, but he, he gets something different than he expects. Verse 6, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Why does Peter have no gold? I don't really know, but he doesn't. We shouldn't worry. A few verses earlier, chapter 2 in Acts, it says that all the believers had all things in common. They gave to the needy among them. That's verse 42 and following of chapter 2. Peter is not destitute. He just doesn't have any cash at the moment. No silver, no gold. But he does have the power of Jesus. He does have the power to heal as one of Christ's apostles, his special messengers. Now, one commentator says that Acts is a transitional book, transitioning from a time when miracles were common to a time when miracles were not. And he, he believes Luke chose to tell this miracle because one, it occurs close to an important sermon, and two, It leads to the first recorded persecution of the church. That's in chapter 4. We'll get to that soon. But this miracle, it shows the power of Jesus. It confirms the miraculous nature of God's message in the early days of the church. Remember Acts, the opening verses. It tells us it is all that Jesus continued to do and teach, even though he is up in heaven, but his Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the church. You might also say this is a preview. Of the times of refreshing, verse 20, that are about to come. It's a sign that the age to come is already breaking into the here and now. It's a preview of all that will happen one day. If you've ever lost a loved one whom you know has gone to heaven, who has suffered physically on this earth, and I hope you're encouraged by this preview, this breaking in of the here and now, a sign of what will happen one day for all of us who trust in Christ. But also notice Dr. Luke, he he gives us the mechanics, the specifics of this miracle. His feet, his ankles are being made strong. And he also says in verse 8, and leaping up, He stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. The language itself seems to leap off the page, doesn't it? Then in verses nine through 11, the crowd sees it. They're amazed, they're astounded. They recognize this guy, they remember who he was. It's almost implied that they, they wanna know what has happened. How did this happen? Peter, of course, doesn't need much encouragement to explain it to them. We'll get to that later on, but for now, notice verse 16. Peter clearly attributes this miracle to the name of Jesus and the faith of this nameless man. In verse 9, it says he praises God. In verse 16, it highlights the faith, presumably the faith of the one who was healed. And even if this man didn't believe in Christ as his savior, Peter wants to use what's happened to lead others to believe in Jesus as the savior, as the one who healed this man. Isn't that Peter's point that Jesus did this? Jesus healed this man. Jesus showed this man grace, made him strong. He gave him perfect health. Jesus gave him, you might say, more than he wanted. He wanted gold or silver money for his daily necessities. Jesus made him healthy. He took away the need for him to ask for alms. He made him healthy for the first time. Now, I'm not Peter. You're not either. We cannot heal the lame in the name of Jesus, though God may still give healing when it's least expected. Some of you even have stories like that. Hospital situations that seemed like they were going this way and they went a different way. But we can't heal like that. We might be able to give money to relieve the pain, the hardship of the needy. If so, remember the words of Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Every phrase here seemingly is important. So then, Paul writes in Galatians six ten, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. But what we can all do, rich or poor, Testify testified to the healing power of Jesus. Why is our world so obsessed with anti-aging technology? Medical advances that are always trying to eliminate the inevitability of death. Because Ecclesiastes 311 God has put eternity in man's heart. We long for eternal life. We long for life more abundant because God made us that way. We long for Eden, for paradise. As John Milton said so famously and succinctly, paradise has been lost. The only way to find paradise again is to turn back to the creator of paradise, the one we've rejected. That leads to our next point. After the man who received grace, not gold, we also see secondly, a group who received guilt they deserved a group who received guilt they deserved in verses 11 through 16. Again, there's been this miraculous healing and people notice that's kind of the point. They begin to gather, verse 11, in Solomon's portico or porch, basically. It's a courtyard outside the temple named for King Solomon. It's a, it's a good place to preach to people. Side note, I, I miss preaching outdoors a little. I did not miss the work it took to pull off an outdoor service. I'm grateful for all who helped make that happen. I also don't miss the air quality warnings in the middle of outdoor services. It's not one thing, it's another that summer, right? But nonetheless, Peter is in a large crowd. He's all abuzz, everyone else is all abuzz about this miracle. And so he seizes the opportunity to explain it to them. In verse 12, And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? And the next time you see a supposed miracle, I want you to ask yourself whether the healer displays this same attitude. Does his demeanor, do do his words in effect say, Christ must become greater, I must become less? Peter is redirecting the praise to Jesus. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. First, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, a formula that every Jew would have Recognized from Exodus 3 and elsewhere, it says he has done something. And what did he do? He glorified his servant, Jesus. Servant, probably an Isaiah allusion. He glorified the suffering servant. The will of the Lord has prospered in his hand because he didn't simply suffer and die. He also rose again. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. But that glorified servant, Peter goes on to say, you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. This is very similar to acts two. you did this. Peter directly confronts them. You did this. Now related thought that I'm gonna cover briefly for now and Lord willing, cover this in more detail in adult Sunday school coming in July. The Bible does discuss corporate responsibility for sin, but in a limited fashion. For example, someone writes, The apostles considered the Jews in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion, notice all the qualifiers, uniquely responsible for Jesus' death. But that doesn't apply to every Jew everywhere in the book of Acts. Of course, what did I say two weeks ago from the hymn, How Great the Father's Love for Us? It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It was my sin that held him there. And we might add, it was Jesus' death that saved me from my sin as well. Song goes on, his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Another author puts it this way. We are all guilty of Jesus' death. He doesn't feel the need for the qualifiers. We are all guilty of Jesus' death, he says. And if we had been there at that time, we might have all joined in the cries of those who demanded Jesus' death. There's guilt to be assigned here, particularly to the Jews in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' death, but also to any who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You were guilty. You did this. It's hard to hear Peter's sermon and not have that ringing in your ears. Verse 13, you delivered and denied. Verse 14, you denied. You asked for a murderer to be released to you. That's Barabbas, the murderer, not Jesus, who was set free. Pilate said, you can have one, who do you want? They said, give us the murderer, not the author of life. Verse 15, you killed the author of life. In these three, four verses here, in English, I count six "us." In Greek, it's as many as 10. And even if I miscount it, I think the point remains the same. 10 times Peter says the word you you did this almost always in a convicting maybe we might even say condemning way but if the shame hasn't shut them down then this is the part that should have made them cry verse 16 in his name the one that you've killed the one that you handed over his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know in the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all the very one they need it's the very one they've rejected can you identify with that this morning is the very one you need the very one that you've rejected is that something we're all guilty of just as guilty in this case as the ones who actually crucified Jesus if so don't tune out because after a group who received guilt that they deserved you also see thirdly a chance to receive restoration from sin, a chance to receive restoration from sin in verses 17 to 21 let's look at 17 right after Peter turns and says this one is the one Faith in his name has made this man strong. He says in verse 17, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. When ignorance is good news. I know it may not sound like good news, may not sound encouraging, it should be. I'm also not saying that ignorance is bliss by the way, but Peter is saying something more like this. Ignorance is understandable, but willful obedience is worse. It's. It's callous. Some sins are worse or more heinous. As Westminster Confession, Shorter Catechism 83 says, some sins are worse, more heinous than others. Peter is stressing here the ignorance so that he can soften the blow, so that he can show them their opportunity to repent, to be forgiven of their sins. It's as if he says, but you didn't know any better. Now, they should have known better, right? Verse 18 kind of says that, but they they kind of didn't. Verse 18, excuse me, that's verse 19. Verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Again, like chapter 2 of Acts, the responsibility we have for our sin, it doesn't eliminate, it doesn't lessen God's sovereignty. He's still sovereign. And Peter doesn't explain how both of those puzzle pieces fit together. He just states them both and he moves on. And so because he doesn't explain it, I won't either for the moment. But Peter's point is that the suffering of Jesus, which, <clears throat> by the way, you're responsible for. Remember, as he's saying this to his audience, the suffering of Jesus was part of God's plan. And the next step of the plan is very encouraging. Verse 19, repent, therefore... And turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago I wanted to read that section all together but let's back up repent therefore and turn back two words that both basically mean turn around repenting turning from sin turning to Jesus it's not how we earn God's forgiveness but it is a necessary thing for salvation because it's a sign of a born-again heart James Boyce says it this way sometimes we feel sorry for what we have done but it is not enough merely to feel sorry sorrow is not repentance repentance is feeling sorry enough to quit and quitting means turning from sin to Jesus Christ. And yet I also have to say this, that quitting, it may seem like a series of false starts, many imperfect attempts to mortify and kill our sin. We've talked about this in our denominational meetings at times and Lord willing this summer at General Assembly, We'll affirm that imperfection will remain even in the lives of born again Christians, even in officers in our church, but we'll also affirm that it's proper for officers, elders, deacons, pastors in particular to pursue hope filled spirit empowered victory over temptation. Repent because it's a sign of a born again heart that hates sin Repent, because there is hope that your sins may be blotted out or erased. Not that all of the earthly consequences of sin are automatically erased. One of our short-term missionaries, some of you have gotten the same emails that I have, recently reminded us that there's a convicted war criminal years ago who gave his life to Christ, but he was still sentenced to death because of his crimes. It's recorded in Lee Strobel's book, chapter five, The Case for Christ. The man, I believe, said the following, it is OK. They have my body. Jesus has my soul. It's important that this history be understood. I want you to tell everything clearly. The presence of mind to say that as he was headed to his death. But again, not every consequence, earthly consequence, is erased by repentance, but the guilt is. The eternal consequences of sin are erased. Because the work of justification makes it just as if I never sinned in God's eyes. Repent. Because there's hope for forgiveness. There's also hope for refreshing. You'll notice verse 20, that phrase, the times of refreshing. And then the very next verse, using some slightly different Hebrew words, the time for restoring all the things that have been promised. There's certainly in eschatological component here eschatological last times end times there's certainly a component of that in what Peter promises here verse 21 seems to make that clear but keep in mind the change that's happened in a few short chapters the Jews of Acts chapter 1 they wanted their kingdom now Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel Peter is wised up by chapter three, and he says, oh, the Jews are not going to get their kingdom until they accept Jesus as Lord until they repent. No one will see that kingdom until they repent. And, you know, even though there is a refreshed, a restored kingdom that is waiting for us one day for all who trust in Christ. Doesn't he also give us times of refreshing now? Don't we sometimes need them so desperately? Doesn't he give them to us now? Isn't that what David is praying for in Psalm 51? Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Isn't there a hint of that in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10? For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Do You want to be refreshed. You want to be freed of your guilt you want to do you want that and if you tried countless other solutions other paths to that that didn't satisfy Peter has a very simple one repent he says turn from sin turn to Jesus quit pursuing all those other things quit the sin that is so full of false promises turn to Christ the fulfillment of every one of God's promises, the yes and amen. And that leads us to our final point, a group who received grace, not guilt, a group who received grace, not guilt, in verses 22 to 26. This is the same group as point number two, by the way. Uh, I almost titled this point something with the words confirmation, not condemnation, but I'm addicted to alliteration, so I went with the, the G words there. But retrace the thought with me. A man receives grace, not gold. And then a group receives the guilt they deserve. And then they hear the chance to receive restoration from sin through repentance, through faith in Christ. And then that same group, at least some of them, they receive grace, not guilt. Because, oh my friends, they were guilty. Remember verses 11 through 16. You killed the author of life. But there's hope. There's also proof here. There's confirmation. See, at this point, Peter quotes an Old Testament passage. Look with me at verse 22. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Moses promised another prophet. He's going to come. Now at the time Moses may not have realized that that God was going to send a prophet, priest, and king all in one. But Moses said, you've got to listen to this prophet. Those who reject him, they will be destroyed. And these who are listening here, these men, this group of men and women, they've already rejected the prophet. But the promise hasn't expired. Verse 24, Peter goes on to remind him, prophet." After prophet, starting with Samuel who anointed King David, they promised a Messiah, an anointed one, like this. This shouldn't be a surprise to you. Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Two things about this verse. One, there's a global dimension to this promise. All the families of the earth will be blessed. But two this promise of blessing, it's particularly held out to Israel, to the, to the ethnic and religious ancestors of Abraham, to the ones who have rejected him. Verse 26, God, having raised up his servants, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Yes, the Jews, again, they would largely reject This promise, and that's one reason the gospel will go out to all the nations. But notice the kindness of God to this unruly, undeserving people. Lest we forget, these are the same ones who killed the author of life. The very one they needed is the very one they rejected. But the very one they rejected is the one who offers them salvation still. God always intended as he said all the way back in Genesis 12 for all the nations to be blessed by Abraham's descendants. And even though God's people in the Old Testament, they failed to be a light to the nations. He still offers them the first chance to receive the blessings of King Jesus. He sent him to you first. Peter says the book of John will say he came to his own. And his own received him not. And you might say he just kept coming. Now you may not be an Israelite. I suspect most of us are not. So maybe we're free from some of the particular guilt that Peter applies to the first century Jews in Jerusalem here. But none of us are free from guilt altogether. Our sin led Jesus to the cross. And if we've trusted in Christ, our sin is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more praise the lord praise the lord oh my soul we all carry guilt some more consciously than others we all need to be freed from it that's one of the things we all need as we said earlier god knows what we need before we ask it there may be needs and struggles that you barely understand in your life maybe you can't even express them or speak them out loud and at the same time god still knows romans eight twenty six tells us likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words someone said about that verse god fixes our prayers on the way up <laughs> god fixes our prayers the spirit helps us to ask by way of translation for what we really need. What we all need is forgiveness of sin, freedom from eternal guilt. We all need a time of refreshing both now and in the age to come forever. And where can we find what we need? We can find it when we turn to the very one that we've rejected. Verse 19 repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you Jesus we can find that forgiveness that refreshing that freedom from the one who knows what we need even before we ask so let's ask him to lead us to what we truly need let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in a fallen world, and whether we realize it uh, ourselves or not, we too are fallen. We too are not all that we should be. Even if we have trusted in Christ, we are not fully restored. We are genuinely new, but we are not fully new, as someone once said. Father, we, we sense that there is something wrong. We sense that life is not all that it should be. Maybe we know specifically what it is and what our problem is and maybe we've asked you to heal us and maybe we're waiting for the, for greater victory over sin. Maybe we just know something's wrong and we don't know what it is. Oh father, if that's the case, would you continue to draw us to ourselves? Would you show us that in you we can find times of refreshing freedom from guilt and sin that we can find all that we need and more from the one who knows what we need, even before we ask. We pray it in Jesus' great name, amen.